Hello everybody, welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. This one is one that I know about, or vaguely know about. I mean, I remember it from when I was a kid. I believe Jill Dender was... Was she a police officer who was murdered outside her house? Or was she a television reporter? Possibly she was a television... I don't know why I'm telling you the story before we even get started with today's podcast, which is all about the murder of Jill Dendo from my home country, the UK. Just in case you couldn't tell by my accent. Uh, what happens here is if you're new, Callum has written me a script, which is a hefty one, Callum. Um, and I've never read it before. We're going to go through it together. We're going to learn all about this. And, uh, well, that's how we do it here at The Casual Criminalist. Look, if you're enjoying this show... Uh, and not my rambling introductions, but, you know, the content we actually aim to produce. If you're watching this show on YouTube, it is also broadcast as a video, so please do hit that thumbs up button. Remember to subscribe. If you're just listening to this in its audio format, welcome. It's great to have you. Leave a review if you are so inclined. That would be fantastic. It gets the show in front of more people, which I always love. So, uh, and I see all those reviews coming in, and there are hundreds, if not thousands of them now, and they're all really nice. So, thank you. That's it's, it's really nice to see. And let's just uh, let's just read this, shall we? The nineties were a strange time in good old Blighty. Tony Blair in government, the Spice Girls number one. It's like my this is my childhood, and little old me living out my primary school days in dismal Fife. Yeah, uh, I was primary school until 1998 so yeah most of the 90s primary school the spice girls were definitely at the top of the charts when i was finishing primary school so i guess it was around 11 um dark days indeed and callum also says dark days indeed i have no idea where fife is though and things only got darker towards the end of the decade with the sensationalized murder of the nation's sweetheart no not princess diana her death was entirely accidental allegedly oh my god there's so many conspiracy theories around that and i'm not a big conspiracy theory guy like often i'm like you know occam's razor you call it what it is but i mean there's a it's like jfk right that's another one where it's like there's a lot of shady going on around that is probably not quite as simple as it seems anyway this isn't the casual conspiracy theorist this is the casual criminalist so let's move on that's a matter for another far more controversial episode or podcast maybe can <laughs> but before we even think about yeah and also i don't want to get murdered by like i don't know that is so sketchy but before you even think about joining the conspiracy nuts and going head to head with the british monarchy or taking a deeper dive into another tragic death from those days this was the murder of jill dando journalist tv presenter and all-round english girl next door yes okay so she wasn't a, i feel like there was another woman who was murdered outside house who was a police officer but maybe i'm just imagining that jill dando definitely a journalist then this iconic TV personality who spent so much of her professional life wrapped up in current affairs ended up becoming perhaps the biggest murder story of the decade. The mystery of her demise is tangled in a web of theories which splinter off and overlap with some of the biggest news stories of the era. It would take a real true crime genius to sort through it all. Luckily, you've got me then, so sit back, strap in for a very British unsolved mystery. Callum talking himself up there. Alright then, let's see how you do, Callum. Jill Dando. Jill Dando was born in Western Supermare in Somerset in 1961, which I think is absolutely brilliantly named town. Western Supermare. Isn't a mare a type of sheep? So it's some sort of super sheep. Or is a mare a goat? Oh my god, I'm so dumb. 
I'm terrible with UK geography, but I know Somerset is south enough that it falls under the category of probably quite posh, but I'm not sure. Dando herself was born into a middle-class journalistic family and followed her father and brother to work at the local paper. But the youngest Dando journo was destined for bigger things. After five years, she landed a job with BBC Radio and eventually worked her way to some of the biggest TV gigs going. By the mid-90s, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Somerset girl became a familiar face on everything from the evening news to Crime Watch. If you're not familiar with this show, it's basically like our version of America's Most Wanted. They discuss open investigations, appeal for information, and stage reconstructions of crimes for the viewers at home. I remember Crime Watch. I'd watch it when I was around my nan's house, and it was always... I feel like all the crimes were really, like, set in dark plain. I guess crime does occur at night, like, more. But it was always like very blurry and everyone's face was obscured, I guess, because actors didn't want to get confused <laughs> for being actual criminals who were wanted by the police. And that would be awkward. And One of the worst things I can imagine is just happening to look very much like another criminal. Wasn't that in the Bible John uh, episode we did about Scotland's Jack the Ripper? And um, it's just got to suck to really look like a criminal. Like if you look just like Charles Manson or something. I mean, I guess they're like, the uh the, the nazi swastika on the forehead you wouldn't have that unless you were really weird but it's got to suck to look just like a criminal <laughs> especially when he's on the run nobody would have believed while they watched ever professional jill rattle off lines from the teleprompter that she herself would one day become the focus of such an investigation fast forward to the spring of 1999 and jill is more content with life than ever successful in work at ease in her own skin and on schedule to marry her fiance dr alan farthing that september dando was truly a woman at the peak of her professional and personal life but all of that was about to be cruelly taken away i don't like it when people say like that person's at the peak of their career because that person's probably like well i hope it's not the peak i hope there's like a long way to go from here she's probably like well i hope i get to be on bigger shows and i hope i get to have kids and all of that stuff i wouldn't like i don't i don't like that being at the peak of anything because i'm always like well yeah if it's the peak then it's all downhill from here then isn't it mate which kind of sucks the murder at a quarter to 12 on the 26th of april 1999 a woman named helen doby was walking down gowan avenue in fulham west london she was a friend of dando's and was surprised to see the presenter's car parked out front of her old home number 29 dando no longer stayed at the house after moving in with her fiance and was in the process of selling it Helen was happy for to have this rare chance for a quick catch-up. She approached the gate to Dando's front garden, where a gruesome and surreal scene awaited. The 37-year-old was slumped over her own doorstep, face down. Doby later described the scene to the mirror as, Her legs were stretched out and awkwardly placed. Her hands, with her engagement ring on it, were stretched out, and the hand was blue. That beautiful engagement ring on a very dead hand. That ring was so full of her hopes and dreams, and it was all taken away from her. Haunting stuff. Jill's friend and neighbor was in no doubt that she was already dead. The body was utterly lifeless, and a pool of blood was spread over the doorstep. So, Doby decided to stay outside of the gate, knowing she might otherwise contaminate the crime scene. From behind the gate, she called 999. Through panic and tears, she told the operator that her friend was dead. She doesn't look as though she's breathing. She's got blood coming from her nose. Her arms are blue. After she finished the call, an agonizing wait followed. The only sound on the street was the constant ringing of Jill's mobile phone probably her fiance calling to check on her when the paramedics finally arrived they attempted to resuscitate the tv star where she lay displaying a bit less respect for the crime scene than you would have hoped yeah <laughs> wait hold on wait, 
I, I do think like, yes, okay, don't contaminate the crime scene. But first, if there is a chance to save her life, definitely worth contaminating the crime scene over. Debbie watched as the color returned to Jill's arms and was mortified. She thought there might have been a chance of saving her had she only acted sooner, but it was all in vain. The color returning to her arms was down to blood circulation caused by the paramedic's chest compressions. No matter what she or anyone else did, there was no saving Jill. That's because 14 minutes before she was found, someone walked up behind the TV star as she unlocked the door and shot her in the side of the head. And this is also, like, being shot is also, in the UK, there's much less guns, I feel. Like, the guns aren't really a thing. There's a lot of stabbings. Like, definitely. I mean, it's not like there's no crime. We love stabbing each other in the UK. Just gun crime is a relative rarity, I feel. I mean, I don't know what the stats say, but I just feel like there's just less of it. The Initial Investigation Jill was dead long before the emergency services arrived on the scene. According to Helen Doby's later conversations with the cops, the first responders got a little starstruck and abandoned proper procedure when they realized the Queen of Primetime was the victim. Whatever forensic evidence might have been left at the scene was irreparably contaminated when they rushed in to examine her, followed by some rookie cops a few minutes after. It was quite evident from a glance that she had been shot. The coroner would later confirm that the cause of death was a close-range gunshot to the left temple, the bullets came out on the other side of her head. Yes, but people survive. It's unusual, but people do survive being shot in the head. And I do think it's the duty of, you know, first responders, medics, to go in there and, well, try and bring her back to life, even if it's unlikely. Judging by the way she was lying, it seemed that her assailant snuck up from behind and grabbed her with his right hand, shoving her face down to the ground. He then executed her with that single shot through the skull. Detectives managed to recover the bullet from the scene, which showed the murder weapon to be a 9mm pistol. Analysis of the cartridge showed that it had probably been tampered with in a workshop prior to the crime. It's possible the killer or his go-to bullet technician had modified it to have a lower charge, thereby making it quieter. Needless to say, whoever killed Joel probably really knew their stuff. They also knew the place in the gun closest to her temple would dampen the sounds, and they pulled off the murder quickly and cleanly enough to get out of there in seconds. Yeah, I mean, this was so long ago, and it's so long since I've read anything about this, but it was talked like she had done some news story or something, and it was it was thought to be a professional hit, which is like super intense. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm that's basing on memories of 20 years ago. But let's see. But you have to ask, why did they do it? Her engagement ring was still on, so it wasn't some random robbery, and the killer never tried to kidnap Jill or force her into the house. On the face of things, there was no conceivable reason for the crime. Jill was beloved by all, with zero enemies that anyone knew of. Yet still, the whole thing seems like an extremely targeted, extremely deliberate attack, perhaps to send some kind of message. Well, she was, was she a journalist? She was more of a TV presenter, right? But then... I don't know, could she have been onto, was she onto some crime ring or something like that? Because I'm half aware of this, I'm also aware that I could be spoiling the story, but really, honestly, my memory is so bad for this sort of stuff from the past. There's like, I, I wouldn't worry about it, dear listener. Speculate with me, if you will. There would be plenty of time to follow up on those angles in the coming weeks and months if the cops could keep the media and public under control. Not exactly an easy task when a celebrity is murdered. Jill was booked to present the six o'clock news on the night of her death. Instead, she became that week's top headline. Crime Watch Tributes flooded in for the recently deceased presenter over the following days from friends, colleagues, and fans. Her Crime Watch co-presenter Nick Ross prepared to host the show without her for the first time in years. In all his time on the show, this was the only time he had to pre-record the intro. He was just too distraught. 
Once the show went live, lead investigator DCI Hamish Campbell introduced the timeline of events that they'd managed to arrive at so far. It began around an hour and a half before the murder. The postman came by Gowan Avenue at around 10.05am and was the first to spot some suspicious activity on the street. He said, I was delivering mail along the odd numbers till I reached 29. I took a couple of paces down the front garden path and just before I reached the front garden gate, I saw a man standing in the road looking directly at number 29. It looked like he thought someone was going to retrieve the mail. The witnesses all described the same individual, or perhaps two different men, working together that day. The most common description was of a man of average height with dark hair wearing a dark suit. Just a few minutes after the postman spotted that shady character, a traffic officer at the end of the street went to ticket an illegally parked Range Rover facing onto Fulham Palace Road, which runs perpendicular to Jill Street. As she was typing the registration into a handheld system, a man knocked on the windshield. She hadn't noticed he was sitting in the driver's seat, so she left the car alone. Another witness reported being tailgated by this same car a few minutes later. It started after she spotted a man in a suit looking up and down the street as she turned onto Gowan Avenue. Towards the end of the street, she noticed the blue Range Rover driving right up behind her with what looked like at least two men inside. She continued on toward Fulham FC Stadium, where this aggressive driver parked on the curb. Dastardly villain or dickhead driver? I'm not entirely sure. Maybe both. Then, at around 10.40, a window cleaner spotted someone lingering in front of Jill's house, speaking on his mobile phone. He was dressed similarly to the person the other witnesses reported, but this guy had blonde hair. Since Jill's house was up for sale, he assumed the guy was an estate agent and evil profession. Yes, but not illegal. <laughs> estate agents. Ah! Either this was a different man from the other... I, I just recently had a bad experience with estate agents. So no hate. I'm sure most of you are fine. But some of you are dickheads. Either this was <laughs> from the other sightings, or the window cleaner made a simple mistake on the hair color. 20 minutes later, we get two more sightings. That blue Range Rover was spotted again at the end of the street, and a witness passed by, a dark-haired guy standing between some cars. At the same time, a suited man wearing oversized glasses was spotted at the end of the road, acting nervously. Nobody took much notice of these guys at the time, so we can't say for sure whether they're describing one, two, or more suspects. Judging by the distance between Alan Farthing's house and Jill's own place, she must have set off around now. She would have left Alan's place at around 12.25 and arrived on her own street about six minutes later. No doubt her killer was watching as she pulled up and parked in the driveway. Within seconds of her stepping out of the car, the execution was complete. Nobody on the street registered what had happened as the gunshot was muted by the manner of the shot and the potential modifications. The next-door neighbor, Richard Hughes, heard Jill cry out, but not in pain. It was as if she'd just recognized someone she knew. Ooh, that I didn't, I, okay. He looked out of his window and spotted a man, potentially the same one who was lingering around all morning, making off down the street in a hurry. An old man living across the street also caught sight of the same dodgy character breaking into a run. The mystery man continued running down the street onto Fulham Palace Road. He was spotted by a handful more witnesses. The first about knocked him down with his car, which would have wrapped up the investigation a lot quicker. <laughs> Others saw him talking on the phone while running down the road before running out in front of a van, forcing the driver to emergency brake. I feel like this guy is making a very conspicuous getaway. Also, if you're going to murder someone on a, what seems to be a very busy London street in the middle of the day... Well, the question is, why are you doing it in the middle of the day? Is this really the best place to, like, do a, what seems to be a fairly professional hit on someone? Like, you can't wear masks in the day. People are seeing, multiple people have seen you and observed you before and after you committed this supposedly professional crime. After that, he disappeared into Bishop's Park. Several witnesses came forward to report seeing a man matching the description of the main suspect, talking 
agitatedly on the phone and lowering his voice when they came near. It's actually possible that these sightings could have been two different men fleeing the scene. One reportedly wore a dark, waxy barber coat and the other only a suit. Either way, the man in the suit eventually emerged from the park and walked to a bus stop on Fulham Palace Road. One witness was already waiting there and noted this newcomer was sweating profusely, so much so that his shirt collar was soaked. He got the impression that it was a plainclothes police officer or something like that. Since he was far closer to any of the other witnesses, he could offer up some finer details. The guy was about 5'9 to 5'10 with a foreign-looking nose <laughs> okay, and an indent as if he usually wore glasses. The witness stepped onto the bus after taking one look at the sweaty stranger. A few minutes later, at 11.45, just as Helen Doby was discovering Jill's body, the man boarded the bus himself. He sat down and talked on the phone. Police were very interested in hearing from any fellow passengers that might have overheard that crucial conversation. After getting off the bus at Putney Bridge Station at 11.55, the prime suspect fell off the face of the earth. No CCTV sightings, no further witness reports, nothing. A little over an hour later, Jill was declared dead on arrival at Charing Cross Hospital. That was the extent of the information gathered in those early days. Plenty of witnesses, but no real leads to chase. Was this mystery man or mystery men really the killer, or was it just some estate agent late for a house viewing, sprinting for the bus? Well, if it was, I mean, surely you'd be able to find him and talk to him. <laughs> Probably the former, as he never came forward to eliminate himself from suspicion. Yes, thank you. Okay, Callum and I, same page as ever. Oh, definitely as ever. So, what do we make of all that? It certainly sounds like the person was waiting there for Jill, and there are some pretty good odds that they weren't working alone. Aside from that, it was a bit of an information overload. The now solo presenter, Nick Ross, certainly thought so, telling the papers years later they were looking for a bunch of stuff, which is just likely to get a lot of people calling in, but that wasn't very focused. It was the show's job to communicate the appeals from the police to the public, but the team behind the show were fairly certain that the coppers were barking up the wrong trees. For one, they placed great significance on the vehicle, which had apparently been verified using nearby CCTV. That ended up flooding the tip lines with reports of Range Rovers, which is super common. This, since it's hardly an uncommon model of car or color. Even though there was no concrete reason to connect it to the murder, it came to dominate early coverage of the case. Find the Range Rover, find the killer. Unless, of course, it was just some road-raging moron passing through the area. Yeah, why not focus? I mean, the witness reports are unreliable and stuff, so that's... He's got a foreign nose! <laughs> Let's look for all foreign nose people! All right. To add to the possible misdirection, the top brass of the police were eager to push the narrative that Dando was killed as retaliation for her work on the show. Perhaps some big-time gangster was behind bars after Dando led an appeal for tips, so they sent a hitman to literally shoot the messenger. Yeah, that's that's the theory that I've that I've heard but I feel like Callum's dismissing it. The Crime Watch team thought that this was a bit far-fetched. Nick Ross himself called this foolish many years later, and on the night of the broadcast mentioned to the audience that it was extremely rare for lawyers, judges, or police officers to face revenge killings in the UK, never mind primetime TV hosts that deliver their appeals. Yeah, okay, so that does seem unlikely, but then it's it, you know, the modified gun, the fact that there is a gun, the very quick and seemingly like professional style like hitman star killing it's like why else would you have to be killed by a hitman you're a tv reporter who reports in crime it doesn't seem that outrageous does it unless i mean maybe it's not got anything to do with this but it's like i mean that does sound seem pretty reasonable doesn't it am i crazy 
But it did make a damn good story. It gave the green light for viewers to wonder which previously featured crook could have hired the hit. As you can imagine, this opened the floodgates on the tip lines, filled with thousands of reports of Range Rovers and theories from everyone on their gran. Most of it, as usual, was useless. As Nick put it, already it was clear that this had such big publicity, the risk was they would get swamped with literally thousands of lines of inquiry, which is exactly what happened. They finished up with over 7,000 lines of inquiry. If we apply the usual ratios, that must have meant 10 actual weaknesses, 100 intelligent ideas, 2,000 well-meaning suggestions, and 4,890 pieces of absolute howling nonsense. The Lines of Inquiry now, unfortunately, we don't have the luxury of turning this into a 50-part special. So, <laughs> the Jill Dando murder part 47. Uh, so, we'll have to distill those 7,000 lines of inquiry into something a bit more manageable. And as we just said, we could basically ignore 5,000 of them because they're from crazy people. Not crazy people, just people who are, you know, just, it's not any help whatsoever. But thanks for trying. The police operation surrounding the case uh, was titled Operation Oxborough and... They spent the better part of a year just distilling down this ocean of speculation. Here are the most interesting avenues that they pursued. Crime Watch Killing Let's start at the slightly less credible end of the spectrum. Oh. Why is it unru Why is this at the least credible end of the spectrum? It seems like she's a totally nice, normal person who doesn't seem to have anyone who wants to kill her, but she does happen to report on a show that helps people catch criminals. And this is unreasonable. Callum, what, was, what have I missing here? Early on, some high-ranking police officers above DCI Campbell's head seemed dead set on the idea that a disgruntled crook had hired an assassin to murder Dandu in retaliation for their arrest. That essentially widened the scope of suspects to everyone featured on Crime Watch. Shoplifters, to drug smugglers, to public masturbators. Perhaps the Worcester Wank Bandit had graduated to murder. But is that an actual thing, the Worcester Wank Bandit? <laughs> is wank a, uh, is that just a British term? It means it, he'd been also known as the Worcestershire Masturbator Bandit. But it's got less of a ring to it, doesn't it? So we say wank. Yeah, I don't think it's these guys. I mean, drug smugglers, yeah, maybe. Shoplifters and, and public masturbators, probably not. But if some incarcerated crime boss was really out for revenge, you'd think that Dando would be pretty low on their kill list. Dozens of police officers, public prosecutors, judges and witnesses came together to put you behind bars, yet you decide to go after the woman that introduced a poorly acted reconstruction of the crime. Yeah. I had to break heavily to avoid hitting him. Stupid idiot! They were poorly acted. I do remember that. Probably not. There would probably be a far bigger trail of destruction to follow if it was simply a matter of revenge. But nothing of the sort materialized, as Nick Ross pointed out to the press years later. We knew it would not be to do with Crime Watch. In modern times, there has never been a judge attacked for sending someone down, a prosecuting solicitor, or anybody. It's just not the way it happens here. After all, we're talking about Blighty Not Bogota. After spending thousands of man hours pursuing this angle, the police eventually agreed. All right. You should pursue it, though, just because it's never happened before. Also, she's the public face of it. Yeah, you've been in a court and there's a judge, but you'll be like, you know, you could be like a crazy criminal being like, she's the one everyone knows. She's the one who turns people on to me. I don't think it's outrageous. I'm happy, not happy, obviously, if that's not what it turned out to be. But I do think the police should have spent time looking into this. Maybe not everybody who was ever on Crime Stoppers, though. Crime Watch. What's it called? Crime Watch? Wasn't it called Crime Stoppers? Was that a different thing? I remember a show called Crime Stoppers as well. Anyway. 
something more personal. If not an incarcerated crook, there remained the possibility that someone else had bad blood against Dando, perhaps someone in her personal or professional life. The cops gathered alibis from everyone, from her agents to her ex-boyfriends, but none became suspects. There was also no hint that Dando owed anyone money or had any ongoing personal feuds. The idea of alibis is such an interesting one, because in shows, it's always like, uh, you know, they'll interview someone that's like, and can you tell me where you were on this date like three weeks ago? I'd be like, oh my god, I have no idea. Wait, can I look at my, can you give me my phone? I need to look at my calendar. How can people remember exactly where they were at specific times? And also, the vast majority of my time, I'm alone at work. If someone was like, where were you last Tuesday afternoon? I was like, I was alone in my office. Can you prove this? Like, no, I was alone in my office. I mean, we could look at my computer, see if I saved any files around that time. But, I mean, that would just, in, in the fictional world, the line doesn't have an alibi, does he? Guilty! Sorry. That was a tangent. Let's get back to it. So, if not someone close to her, perhaps someone who desperately wanted to be. Ooh, oh yes, maybe she was being stalked by a weirdo. Because she's, like, famous and pretty. Okay, here we go. Dando was a young, pretty woman in the public eye. There we go. The nation's primetime sweetheart. As you can imagine, that meant she had more than her fair share of creeps hovering around. Her brother Nigel even told the police that she was worried about some guy pestering her a few days before the murder. That particular creep had an alibi. Look, and, and I can't even imagine what this is like. I am a little bit known, but I'm not a, but I'm not an attractive woman. And it's like, I still get people who are like really creepy. There are people who are definitely creepy. They email you, they message you, it gets weird. It's like, I just don't, obviously I don't reply. Just, I don't even block, I just ignore because blocking is like, I saw it. So I'm just like, no, no, or block. If it gets really weird, you gotta block because otherwise it's just crazy. But that's me. For her, there must be so many and it must be really unpleasant. Don't be a creep, people. <laughs> All right? This particular creep had an alibi, but she received thousands of pieces of fan mail at the BBC, some of which were extremely sexually explicit. Yes, no surprises there in any way whatsoever. Out of all those horny, horny male sacks, 140 people were identified as being obsessed with the TV star. Could one of them, frustrated with Dando's romantic indifference or upcoming wedding, have tracked her down and killed her? That might even explain why the killer was apparently waiting at an address that she rarely used anymore. If it were someone close to her, they'd have known she had basically moved out of 29 Gowan Avenue. But then, this doesn't quite sit right with the manner of the killing. I'm no criminal psychologist, not a qualified, paid, or competent one anyway. <laughs> so in no way whatsoever, Gallen. But it seems to me that a skilled execution from behind doesn't add up with a crime of obsessive passion. Surely if the killer was obsessed with Dandu, he would have wanted to see her face, or even for her to know his name before pulling the trigger. If it would have been far more intimate events than it turned out to be, which was far more in keeping with the cold, emotionless contract killing. Would the killer not have waited until Dando was inside and tried to gain access? Would they not have taken a souvenir, her wedding ring, or a piece of clothing, perhaps? Perhaps I'm a better criminal psychologist than I give myself credit for, because it turns out that of all 140 of the sexually frustrated correspondents, when they were tracked down, they had solid alibis for that day, which makes me wonder, were they really putting their return addresses on their suite? Palmed fan mail. Yeah, it's quite incredible that the police tracked down these 140 people. I don't even bother putting my return address on regular letters I send because I'm like, if the person doesn't get it, I'm just going to send it again. If it, because I'll know, they'll send me an email because I guess this was back in the day. But it's like, look, if the BBC's not getting my weird, sexually explicit fan mail to Jill Dando, um, I, 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 I don't want it to go back to me. Also, it's the BBC. You know, you got the address right. <laughs> so, oh my god.
<laughs> what, why, what are you doing? And it's just amazing that the police managed to track down all 140 of them. Even more amazing that they all had alibis, because as we've already discussed, if it was me, they'd be like, I'll be the one who didn't have an alibi because I was at work alone. Although I wouldn't be sending uh, aggressive, sexually explicit messages to, to someone. But please, just don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Random act of violence. With all their stalkers and boyfriends absolved, the criminal obsession theory all fell apart. The idea that someone was following Dando was also discredited by thorough CCTV analysis of her final days. Her brother Nigel Dando told Scotland's own TV golden girl Lorraine Kelly, The police carried out an exhaustive check of CCTV as it existed then. They plotted Jill's journey, they were able to monitor thousands of phone calls being made in the area at the time, and there was nothing that jumped out that day. That's a lot of data to go on. According to data from 2020, London is the third most surveilled city in the world, with over 630,000 CCTV cameras. Eight of the rest of the top ten are in China and one in India. If Jill was being followed before the crime, the guy must have done a damn good job of hiding himself. For this reason and more, Nigel Dando believes that it wasn't a targeted attack against his sister at all. He was sitting in his newspaper office on the day of the murder and found out about his sister's murder when it flashed up on a monitor showing Sky News. What? That's how you found out? Holy shit. How did no one call you before that happens? That is unreal. That is unreal. He spent years trying to make sense. Can you imagine that? That'd be, oh my God, that is insane. He spent years trying to make sense of the event afterwards before concluding that maybe there wasn't any sense to it at all. He thinks it was just some violent opportunists that took their chance to kill a celebrity. Nigel added, I believe there was no reason. It was just an act of random brutality and Jill was in the wrong place at the wrong time. After all, if the killer really was plotting against Jill, then surely they would have done better research. It wasn't a secret that the house was vacant and not for sale. She only actually went there that day to pick something up before heading off for a wedding dress fitting. That could certainly help explain away some of the more confusing parts of this riddle. Arbitrary murders are often the hardest to solve. However, several details mean that it's not quite a waterproof theory. For one, the man lingering across the road was there for almost half an hour. He was in the area from the postman's sighting at 10.05 until fleeing the scene after the murder. It hardly screams random violence, especially when he's spotted right across from that specific house. And the fact that he happened to have a gun on him implies that he came prepared. I mean, 9mm pistols aren't exactly 10 a penny in the UK. Our supermarkets just sell food and non-deadly essentials, unfortunately. Yeah, I do like it. You go to America, it's like, you're in a Walmart, there's a gun section. <laughs> Okay. You can purchase big knives. All right. <laughs> I was just here for some ice cream, but I guess I'll get a machete. So if you're going to use one, you probably have to have a few connections to get your hands on one. Plenty of old folks down the pub might claim they know a guy, but I've yet to follow up on any of their claims. Yeah, it'd be weird to like buy a gun in the UK. I don't really know how I'd go about it. I guess like I'd ask my mate. You, you think about who's your most dodgy friend and ask them about their most dodgy friend and then ask their drug dealer. <laughs> It's like, I would know, I would have no idea. Or I guess, like, can't you just buy guns on the internet these days? Isn't there, like, that, the dark web? Like, there's that, from back in the day, the, the Silk Road website. They sold guns, right? There was, was it Vice? Or maybe it wasn't Vice. I think it was, like, a Dutch version of Vice, where they had, like, this uh, investigative TV show. And the guy buys it, like, he's like, yeah, I think, I can, you know, I guess in, in Holland or in, in the Netherlands, they have the same you know you can't buy guns you can't just buy handguns but this guy for this show he buys a gun like a full-on the journalist manages to buy a gun off the dark web and i'm like dude that is intense 
But this was in 1999, there was no dark web. Why are we down this rabbit hole, Simon? Stop thinking about how to buy guns. You're gonna get yourself in trouble. Not that I, I, I haven't bought any guns. <laughs> Illegally. You know, I haven't bought any guns at all. I own no guns. Hi. Okay. Usually Londoners prefer their random acts of violence a bit more traditional. Good old-fashioned stabbings, as I mentioned earlier. I'm not saying it's impossible this was a random spur-of-the-moment broad daylight shooting, just that those are relatively rare in the UK, and if the bullet really was modified before use, this only adds to the idea that the person came with murderous intent. The entire nation of Serbia So, once you've eliminated stalkers, lovers, gangsters, and random thugs, where do you look next? Those pesky Serbs, of course. Of course, the Serbs. It would normally take some impressive mental gymnastics to accuse the entire country of Serbia for the murder of a BBC presenter, but the idea is actually surprisingly sensible. Back in 1999, the Kosovo War was fast approaching a bloody zenith. Since March the 24th, NATO air forces had been launching strikes against the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, a union of Serbia and Montenegro, in retaliation for the ethnic cleansing of Albanians, an ethnic cleansing which Dan personally led appeals against campaigning for humanitarian aid. Even more compelling was that just three days before Dando's murder, a British bomber involved in the project struck a broadcasting station in Belgrade. Sixteen civilian workers died inside, one of whom, according to Jill's mother, was essentially her Yugoslav equivalent, the Jill Dando of Serbia. If the Serbs were keen to strike back at the UK for killing their civilians, they might have chosen Dando as the target for symbolic reasons, an eye for an eye, or rather a beloved primetime presenter for a beloved primetime presenter. Yeah, but then they'd want it to kind of be publicly known that one of their bad guys assassinated her, right? Otherwise, it's like, well, probably not. It's just, that's just a conspiracy theory, right? Anyway. On that theory, her sister Judith said, The fact that it might have been a tit-for-tat reprisal, I can understand that it might be the case, particularly since the way Joe was killed. It makes me think that it's related to something bigger than the actual act. I agree with that. Like, this, it seems too tidy, as we've said a few times. Threats did come into the BBC in the days before Jill's murder, which resulted in an increased security around the Director General Sir John Burt. If he were the intended target of the reprisals, perhaps Jill was the plan B, a failsafe if they were unable to reach the broadcasting chief himself. Or who knows, maybe there were Serbian operatives watching the doors of more beloved BBC legends their day, seeing who showed up first. That would mean they missed a golden opportunity to put down Savile. <laughs> That's the episode I wish I was really writing. Oh my god. You don't know Jimmy Savile, the guy who was like, I don't know much about him because I think he was a little bit before, like early for me, like before my time. But he was just turned out to be like a massive pedophile, right? That was intense. <laughs> so many people, it's like, I'll just turned out to be like massive pedophiles and sexual predators. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> Why? The anger was never taken particularly seriously by the police. Despite the fact her Serbian hitman was in London at the time, he was overlooked in the early days. And the threats never stopped with Dante's death. Shortly after, calls came into the BBC from several men with heavy Eastern European accents, claiming responsibility for various Bosnian Serb nationalist groups. The director of the BBC was eventually even told he was next on the list. Your Prime Minister Blair murdered, butchered 17 innocent people. He butchered, we butcher back. The first one you had yesterday, the next one will be Tony Hall. It's possible to tell if these were hoaxes or not, but some familiar with the tactics of the old Yugoslavian hit squads, hit squads were quick to point out key similarities. One was Conservative MP Patrick Bursa, who fought in Bosnia during his time in the army. He's quoted as saying, It had all the hallmarks of covert forces. The killer even used specially tailored ammunition, which was a Serbian assassination trademark and something I saw when I was over there. This is suddenly seeming really likely. Like, I don't know why my opinion just changed quite substantially towards this. Yeah. 
Yeah, the added the, the stuff is adding up for this one, isn't it? And also, if they knew that there was a Serbian hitman in London, how did he get in? Why are they allowing the Serbian hitman to just cruise around London? <laughs> it's like, hi, welcome to the UK. It's like, no, 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 you're the hitman. You're the hitman. You're not welcome. The hitmen employed by Yugoslav communists were all known to work in pairs, a shooter and a lookout. That would fit the theory that two strange men were lingering around that day, one across from the house and one on the corner keeping watch. These highly trained killers would have known to avoid blood splatters by placing their gun right against the head. The Slavic Sicarios also made a habit of killing people on their doorsteps as a way to confirm their identities before pulling the trigger. In fact, just 15 days earlier, dissident Serbian journalist Slavko Kuravia was found dead on his doorstep in Belgrade in eerily similar fashion to Dando. Even his widow believes there was a connection between the two deaths. Compelling stuff, but if these guys were such pros, then surely their escape plan went a bit further than just run until drenched in sweat and hop on the number 45 bus. That's the thinking of a teenage shoplifter, not an international hitman. It's also likely that their weapons would have been slightly more sophisticated. The cartridge casing of the gun was recovered from the scene. Analysis suggested that the handgun might have actually been a replica modified in a workshop to function like the real thing. Okay, um, yeah, also, if you're a professional hitman, don't you collect your casings? Like I see that in movies. They shoot someone, they pick up the brass, and then they carry on because otherwise you're just leaving evidence behind or they have one of those little collectors that collects the brass i know the budgets were probably a bit tight in belgrade at the time but surely you can afford proper guns for your assassins yeah but i mean replica guns are not a super common uncommon thing right there's like the famous guns and then there's some chinese knockoff or like version of it which is basically the same gun but i don't know that doesn't seem like the worst thing ever for an assassin or like for a government to use the replica gun or the fake version of it each of the possibilities seems reasonable enough but every single one has its flaws that's why six months into the investigation despite a ridiculously bloated case file with 2500 interviews oh my god and a thousand statements on record that's intense no definite lead solidified. Hope was beginning to dry up. With the Serbs off the hook for now, the police decided to hone in on one individual who couldn't be fully accounted for. Barry George by the turn of the millennium, the London Metropolitan Police had arrived at a belief that an individual with mental problems killed Dando in an act of reckless opportunism. Who prepared a bullet ahead of time and killed someone perfectly with minimal blood splatter? Oh, come on. They extended their search beyond Dando's immediate acquaintances to include any dangerous eccentrics in the local area. That's how they came across Barry George, described by his own defense lawyer as the local nutter. That might sound harmless enough. Every British town has the local nutter, after all. If you don't know who yours is, it's probably you. But Barry was apparently more dangerous than a normal nutter. He was known for uncomfortably approaching women in Fulham and the surrounding boroughs and held convictions for various sexual harassment and antisocial crimes. For example, in 1983, he was arrested while hiding in the bushes outside of Kensington Palace waiting to see Princess Diana. Rather than an autograph book, he brought some rope, a knife, and a belt and was wearing combat gear, for which he amazingly faced no charges. I mean, is there a crime? Eh, I, I mean, absolute weirdo. No idea what he's going to get up to. But until you've committed a crime, I don't think there's a crime. I mean, maybe the knife, but like, so, okay. But what we should absolutely be doing, keeping a very close eye on that guy. 
He also fit the profile of an unstable eccentric perfectly. Barry was known for claiming to be the cousin of Freddie Mercury and lied about serving in the SAS. His severe social problems might have been related to Asperger's syndrome, which can make reading interactions extremely difficult. He may also have had the motive and knowledge to commit the crime. Barry had a short stint of employment with the BBC working as a messenger. Even after he was let go, he continued to pop in to collect a copy of the staff newsletter. It's possible he could have set his sights on Dando while working there, or since his house was just a 10-minute walk from hers, on Crookham Road, there was every chance he knew where she lived. Celebrities rarely get the same privacy as ordinary people. The cops decided to start tailing Barry and observing his behavior. In the three weeks they followed him, he approached 38 different women on the street and tried to initiate conversations. <laughs> Maybe he was just being friendly, though. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, but he's, he's got all these convictions for sexual harassment. <laughs> he's probably being overly friendly. I think that's his problem. And by overly friendly, I mean being to the point of harassment sexual harassment. This was taken as reason enough to search his home, where the puzzle pieces all fell nicely into place. Inside were 100 rolls of undeveloped photographic film featuring 2,248 pictures of women taken by Barry George without the knowledge of those featured. Oh, okay. He is probably not just being friendly. I'd probably like to retract that former statement. <laughs> yes. It seems Barry had made a habit of following women around, both celebrities and everyday folks, and snapping the old-school film photographs for his collection. Among the women featured was TV personality Anthea Turner, another blonde pretty BBC mainstay. Dando herself wasn't featured, but as I mentioned, she lived just a short walk away. Yeah, by the fact she's not featured, considering everyone else in his local area seems to be featured, it'd be a bit like, it's a bit suspicious that she wasn't. Also, are these real roles of film undeveloped? Because going to the film processor would be like, hey, <laughs> I've got 2,248 photos that I need developed, and they're all of women that I took on the street. <laughs> like, I don't know what the people who work in photo labs back in the day, what like the policy was on that kind of stuff, but like, is that enough to like tell the police to be like, hey, we I think we got another weirdo over here. So there's your motive right there. Wait, uh, 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 hold on. Being a weirdo and sexually harassing women and taking photographs of them and then storing them in your house like some sort of weirdo is not the same as murder. It's not as bad. I'm going to say it. Like, we like to, I, I feel like we live in a black and white world these days where it's like everything's horrific or it's fine. There's definitely a scale, and murder is worse than what he's been up to. So I don't really think that is enough for, like, motive for murder. Anyway, how about means? Apparently, Barry was a fully fledged gun nut who collected military magazines, owned a list of firearms, leather holsters, sans handgun, and other weapons related paraphernalia. He just owned a leather holster without a handgun. <laughs> Weird. Key to the case against him was a photograph of the suspect wearing a gas mask and holding a starter pistol. According to police, that gun could have been modified to fire live ammunition, as they suspected was the case in Dando's death. The nail in the coffin was a tiny speck of gunpowder found on the inside of his jacket. Oh my god, dude, you're in trouble. Okay, now, sorry, Callum must have been leading into this. Um, wait, no, this isn't enough motive, but now it does, I mean, this is some fairly conclu conclusive evidence, or is this circumstantial evidence? I mean, either way, it doesn't look good for you, does it, mate? On the 25th of May, Barry George was arrested and formally charged with the murder of Jill Dando three days later. All of the evidence above led to his conviction a year later, when he was sentenced to life in prison on the 2nd of July 2001. After all their promise of James Bond-level intrigue, our culprit turned out to be just some weird guy. 
Or was he? I mean, our Barry man was very much a weird guy, but was he the murderer? That's a more difficult question. For one, he wasn't exactly a dead ringer for the police sketch. Bear in mind, the sketch was made from the testimony of quite a few witnesses, and they reported someone more Mediterranean in appearance. If you look at his mugshot and sketch side by side, they look a bit similar if you shave off 70% of the chin and completely reshape the nose. So they, they don't look similar. There was no physical evidence placing him at the scene either. That spot of gunpowder was key to proving he could have handled live ammunition at some point. However, analysis after his conviction proved that this was hardly the smoking gun it was made out to be. Yeah, he just fired a gun and a gun was also fired at a murder scene. This is all way too circumstantial. I mean, it doesn't look good for you. But one, I don't think the motive is solid enough. You're just a weirdo. And second, that evidence, especially on a sketchy motive, doesn't seem like it's going to be strong enough to get a jury to be 99.9% absolute, you know, beyond all reasonable doubt that he's the guy. But apparently, <clears throat> prosecution managed to do that. The jacket had been taken to a photographic studio before the laboratory, the same photographic studio where a terrorism suspect's gun and bullets were photographed before being put into evidence not long after. Neither the mannequin nor the surfaces were tested for gunpowder beforehand, completely undermining the evidence. Then there was the method of the crime. Although Barry was hooked on stolen valor, he didn't actually have any special forces training. In fact, even his regular education was extremely lacking. His defense team pointed out that he had developmental problems and an IQ of 75, which is very low. According to tests of prison psychologists, he had tested in the bottom percentile for memory and other aptitude tests, so hardly an evil genius. And as you can see, the case against Barry George was actually much thinner than it seemed in the first trial. His defense team lobbied two failed appeals against his conviction over the following years, arguing that the police had just gone with the most convenient scapegoat to avoid looking like fools in front of the nation. It wasn't until 2007 when the gunpowder evidence was undermined through further analysis that the Crown agreed to hear the case again. The next year, the prosecution told their side of the story. Essentially, heaps of circumstantial evidence against Barry's character and some sketchy resemblances to a limited number of witness descriptions. Without the gunpowder, the case fell apart. Barry George's conviction was overturned on the 1st of August 2008. Yeah, so he spent seven years in prison for something he basically didn't do. As his defense lawyer put it, the case reflects a desperation on the part of the police that after a year they didn't have the faintest idea who had done it, an accusation which DCI Campbell called somewhat insulting and completely untrue. Well, do you know who it was, DCI Campbell? Because it seems to be that you don't, and it wasn't this guy as the court said, and it seems like you just railroaded him because you needed someone to blame. But let me, that, but, okay, Callum even says, but we'll leave that one up to you to decide. The Hitman's Story So, almost a decade after Jill Dando's murder, the investigation was back to square one. And I hate to have to tell you, but we've basically stalled out ever since. The case is cold. That's not to say it's forgotten. Jill's family and friends still appear on British TV every now and then with new appeals for information. And some compelling leads have come up since the arrest and trial of Barry George. I'll go ahead and drop a small spoiler by saying that most people are now convinced that a professional pulled off the murder. Several people in the British and Serbian underworld have suggested they might know who was to blame. Cop-turned-journalist Mark Williams Thomas, the guy who broke the Jimmy Savile case, managed to speak to one of them face-to-face. -face. He gained access to police documents which showed a list of potential suspects. These were hired killers and assorted miscreants. In 2018, he told the show this morning, I've never reviewed a case where there is so much information that was never followed up. And the reason being is the police prosecuted Barry George and the information came in prior to the trial after his arrest and continued to come in afterwards. He looked upon himself to do so. William 
Liam Thomas managed to track down an unarmed individual from the list to pick his brains, a known hitman who was identified as a potential lead but never pursued. The journalist asked the contract killer if any of the names on the long list of the underworld suspects might be to blame. He replied, There's one in particular that stands out to me, but I wouldn't identify that person because it's very dangerous. Yeah, I mean, dude, if you're a hitman and you're going to be ratting out some other hitman to a journalist, you're going to get hit. <laughs> by, and by that, I mean murdered by other hitmen. Because I've seen, like, hitman movies. They're, you know, you, you know they're going to kill you. It's, what, it, it's literally what they do. Stitches get snitches, as they say. It seems like he might have passed on their name to Mark William Thomas under condition of total anonymity. The journo now believes he has the name of the man who ordered the murder. To send out a direct bloody message to others, do not take on organized crime. Yes. I mean... <laughs> I mean, I'm no hero. I'm no journalist. It's like we've, I've, my writers have sometimes submitted pieces to me, like for this, not this channel particularly, but other channels that I've done. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I have no interest in getting killed. We're not doing that. I'm not a journalist. Like, I have a huge admir admiration for everything that journalists do and all of that stuff, but I, I just, I just don't want to get killed. So good for you, journalists, but I'm just too much of a coward and not enough of a hero. Note to Simon, leave London gangsters alone. I'm quite enjoying not being dead. Me too, Callum. <laughs> Me too. The journalist has handed this and all other investigative o efforts over to the Met. Three is on, and nothing concrete has come of it. John the Englishman However, there's a popular theory that features in documentaries about the case, which might shed light on what kind of story William Thomas unearthed. A career criminal named, and I've read this section once already, and I named the guy and all of the stuff, and then Callum at the end is like, maybe you don't want to read this, Simon, in case you get murdered. So let's just say there's another theory about a crime boss who was doing some stuff, and this just ties into exactly what I just said. I'm too much of a coward. Um, but basically, maybe it was organized crime from some dude, and yeah, also possible. I'd rate it as, I mean, as Callum says in the section, it's a lot of mites and maybes. <laughs> so I don't think it's particularly likely, put it that way. Um, and we're just going to skip over it because I don't want to get killed. <laughs> However, I know it's extremely unlikely. <laughs> it's like, just no. The Colleague's Story Things took a bit of a detour from the usual hitman angles in 2014 when an anonymous BBC staffer made some extraordinary claims about Dando's final days. This was just a couple of years after the child abuse scandal broke and the nation discovered their public broadcaster was hiding about as many skeletons as the Catholic Church. The anonymous whistleblower, who let's be honest may not have existed, apparently leaked information to the Daily Express that Dando was on the cusp of blowing open a paedophile ring composed of powerful celebrities and public figures. I don't recall the names of all the stars now and don't want to anyone, but Jill said they were surprisingly big names. Apparently, this cabal of sex offenders ordered a hit against Dando to make sure her findings were never made public. Now, all things considered, I have to rate this one at a 0 out of 10. It sounds like some headline-making nonsense cooked up by a dishonest journalist or maybe a dishonest informant. Plus, we're getting dangerously close to Pizzagate territory, and that is a watch list I'd rather not be put on. Agreed. The Smuggler's Story how about something marginally less soul-crushing? Okay, yeah, let's move away from gangsters and paedophile rings and 
towards something marginally less soul-crushing. Brilliant. In 2009, the year after Barry George walked free, another behind bars came forward to offer a lead to police. This was pilot and coke smuggler Christopher Bartlett Jolly, whose own life story could be a separate episode entirely. Yeah, as soon as you involve like pilots and cocaine smuggling, it's like it's going to be some like Barry Seal story or who's that other guy, Mr. Nice? That book, it's always it's always good. It's like it's full of excitement and prison and drugs. Um, yeah. <laughs> well well done for glamorizing the international drug trade, Simon. Well done. Although I don't really do that. Hollywood does that. Very briefly, Barrett Jolly operated a company out of Coventry Airport called Phoenix Aviation. He got into hot water with animal rights protesters in the mid-90s for transporting live veal cattle overseas in poor conditions. In 2001, he found a more profitable cargo than baby cattle. He chartered a plane from Belgium, and when they were suspicious about his intentions, he claimed to be an undercover CIA operative not at liberty to discuss his mission. Unbeknownst to the airplane's owners, that mission was smuggling 271 kilograms of cocaine to the UK. All right. By the time he made the full trip from Belgrade to Jamaica to South End, someone had tipped off UK customs. They quite easily saw through his ridiculous cover story and sent him down for 20 years. By my calculations, it'd be scheduled for release this year. But anyway, back to the point. This British pilot apparently made some connections in the criminal underworld before being sent down for smuggling. In 2009, he told investigators that while he spent time at a shady bar in Belgrade, he overheard a Serbian hitman bragging about killing Jill Dando. Oh my god, this seems so unlikely already. So we're basing this off a criminal in prison giving a tip to the police about a conversation he heard about a hitman bragging in Serbia. No, um, um, come on, come on. The story has apparently been corroborated by two other witnesses who were there at Belgrade's Portobello bar that day. One of these anonymous sources is reported to have said about the contract-killing Serb who reportedly had connections to England's West Midlands. During the conversation with his friends, it turned to what had happened in the UK with Jill Dando. The friends of his actually said, well, this was the man that was involved in that. He took a bow over that because he claimed he had something to do with it. He stood up and his friends applauded him. This, this sounds wildly unlikely. Does that mean for sure that the Serbian theory is true? No, Caleb, it definitely doesn't. Absolutely not. Good. Go to any dodgy pub and you'll find at least two to three guys who claim to know all the top gangsters. It's kind of like the opposite of stolen valor. Stolen vice, perhaps. Or stolen villainy. At any rate, the report came from a condemned man with a track record of making up elaborate stories. Yeah, it's like, I want a mission for the CIA. A mission to smuggle 271 kilograms of cocaine. Yes, I know about the murder of Jill. D You're just a braggart. We'll have to take it with a pinch of salt, in fact. Dig around online and you'll find dozens of attempts to link specific underworld figures to the crime throughout the years. It's become a pretty reliable story for tabloids to milk for clicks. On a related note, I've read so much of The Sun and Mirror today, it may have caused irreparable brain damage. And The Express. The Express is worse than all of them. God damn. All of these possibilities, and we're still no closer to a satisfying conclusion. Given the fact that 22 years have passed since the murder of Joel Dando, it's unlikely that we'll ever know who is really behind her death. It'll simply go down as one of the most sensational, perplexing, unsolved cases ever to make UK headlines. I won't tell you what to make of this tangled web of madness, but I will leave you with the same warning as usual, this time delivered with the wise words of DCI Campbell. In most cases, when a darker conspiracy is offered up, the truth proves more boring and mundane. Yeah, I think almost always. But in this one, I really want to go for the Serbian hitman theory. <laughs> it just seems like more... I guess the most likely thing is it's just like this was some random attack by some crazy person who wanted to kill a celebrity and the like low charge gun thing could just be like someone's modification of a starter pistol or uh, whatever the gun was called. That kind of boring stuff. 
and all the other stuff is just easily, just not easily explainable, but separately explainable. I don't know. I don't know. What, what do you think? If you're watching this on YouTube, let me know in the comments. Wrap up. If justice for Jill isn't an option, then all that's left today is a little where are they now for our supporting cast. Barry George, wrongfully convicted man and rightfully convicted pervert, has had a bit of trouble readjusting to life on the outside. He told the papers, coming out, everything was moving so fast. I was trying to settle back into the community. I'm not entirely sure the community welcomed him back with open arms. Let's hope they at least confiscated that sneaky camera of his. Yes, except now it's 2021. And he's got cameras everywhere. He's just got a phone. He's like, snap. People don't even know. And he doesn't even have to get them developed anymore. No one even gets to find out that he's a weirdo. Allegedly. DCI Hamish Campbell has lost any optimism that the case might one day be solved. In his eyes, the only thing that might move things forward now is retrieving the handgun that ended Jill's life. Besides that, there's little hope. That gun is gone, mate. Where do you think you're going to find that? Mark William Thomas offered a little hope on that front. Oh, 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 did I speak too soon? In 2018, when he suggested the cops dredge an overlooked canal, but it's unclear if they followed through on the tip. I guess not. Or if they did, they didn't find it. Despite departing before her time, Jill's legacy lives on. Her colleagues at the BBC established a memorial garden for her in her hometown of Western Supermare, while Crime Watch's Nick Ross and Dando's fiance Alan Farthing established the Jill Dando Institute for Crime Science at University College London on the 26th of April 2001, exactly two years after her death. And lastly, Helen Doby, the woman who tragically discovered Jill's body on the doorstep, took a while to emotionally recover. For years, she had trouble sleeping, unable to forget the horrific sights from that day. But now she takes comfort in Jill's memory. I will light a candle at 40 minutes past 11.30am, the time when I found her. I do it wherever I am on that day, every year. At least there's the minor consolation that those involved have at least managed to find some closure for themselves. Still, it would have been nice to nab those pesky serves, though. Dismembered Appendices 1. There's one person I forgot to do a wrap-up for, and he has perhaps the most interesting biography of all. Jill's ex-fiancé, Alan Farthing, continued on his highly successful medical career, and he's now a gynecologist for the royal family. Wow! That is wild. Good for him. Number 2. In a fitting tribute to the journalistic star killed long before her time, Jill Dendo news centers have been set up around the UK, which aim to get young people into journalism. More recently, in King Alfred School Highbridge, just a few hours south of her hometown, you can find them on Twitter at Jill Dendo News. Number 3. Barry managed to win damages from News of the World and other media organizations in a landmark libel trial. Barry, the guy who's a bit of a pervert, right? <laughs> I think now he's going to be winning a libel trial against me. Allegedly, Barry, allegedly. Um, but he's yet to receive any compensation from the state for the seven years of his life he lost. He should absolutely be compensated for that, though. I mean, he was wrongfully convicted on dodgy... Ah, oh, should he be... Ah! Like, if you start giving people compensation... I think in this case he should be, because the police railroaded him, and the evidence was shoddy and all of this stuff, but he was convicted by a jury of his peers or whatever. But still, he needs to get something. He should get something. To be eligible for that, his innocence would have to be proven beyond a doubt, and that would require the real killer to be found. Oh. Proving innocence beyond doubt is extremely difficult. Number four. If none of today's theories tickled your fancy, let's throw the IRA in for a laugh. It wouldn't be a true nighty story without them. That decade saw a major campaign of attacks from the Irish from the provisional IRA, and one of their members, Wayne Aird, claims that one of their hit squads killed Dando. The theory goes that the powers that be knew this to be true, but covered it up to preserve the Northern Ireland peace protest. And again, let's not move into Pizzagate, shall we? This has been an episode, a long and in-depth and unsolved episode 
of The Casual Criminalist. I do hope you liked it. If you did, please do use that thumbs up button below if you're watching this on YouTube. Make sure you're subscribed. If you are listening to this as a podcast, please do give us a review. It makes a big difference. It gets this show in front of more people, which is fantastic. And that would be wonderful. I see all the reviews. Did I say this at the beginning of the show? I see all these great reviews come in. And I think the podcast has like 4.9 stars and thousands of reviews, which is amazing. And I can't believe how many people have listened to this show, which is, it's, it's really nice, like, to make things and have people enjoy them. So uh, it's kind of what I do, why I do things. So it's, it's nice to see. Thank you, everybody, for watching, listening, and I'll see you next time.